this episode, we're joined by William Clegg Casey, one of the most celebrated advocates of the English bar. Shaped by William's memoir, Under the Wig, we explore the barrister profession, touching on some of his most notorious trials and the ethical dilemmas faced by legal professionals. Okay, so to start us off, can you please tell us what it means to be a KC and what the role involves? Well, being a KC is a a senior barrister um, who is primarily involved in in advocacy, certainly in the field that um, I practice in. But uh, it also involves uh, advising clients as to um, what the law is and um, how they can operate within it. Thank you. That was a really clear explanation. Could I please ask about the importance of written advocacy for barristers? Well, I think uh, things have changed a lot in the course of my career. Um, When I started, there was very little written advocacy. But now uh, skeleton arguments are increasingly important in all courts. And it's an opportunity to um, get some good points across to the judge before the case even begins. So that uh, if you're... Um, got a good enough argument, you can half get the judge on your side before the case even starts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just out of curiosity, um, is there a particular reason why they've increased in importance throughout your career? I think it's because cases are more complex than they used to be, and it helps the judge to uh, understand what the issues are. Otherwise, the judge doesn't have any uh, solicitor assisting him or any juniors, and he's a bit at a loss to know exactly what part of the papers he might need to read before an application. So uh, some of the cases I've been involved in, there might be 30, 40, 50,000 pages of documents, and um, a skeleton argument identifies to the judge what ones he needs to look at to determine that particular issue. I can see particularly how the complexity of cases, that could be a massive tool in the starting of cases. I think it's quite hard to actually imagine Mm -hmm. a case bundle or whatever it's called, all those pieces of evidence and documents. 
I think if you've never gone to a court before and sort of listened into a case or done some experience, you can kind of think that there wouldn't be evidence as specific as there is. Well, all cases um, vary, but um, a lot of evidence is now on, on computers um, and di modern disclosure um, rules um, require um, the disclosure of often hundreds of thousands of documents that can be searched um, through um, various um, word searches on a computer, um, which will narrow the task down for the lawyers. But the volume of paperwork bears no relation to what the position was 30 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. At least it's not all tied in the no. string Actual now. Bundle, no, the, anyway. <laughs> the, the briefs don't come tied in red tape <laughs> anymore. They're more likely to be on a computer disc. So you've had a fantastic career, still do, even though you no longer um, practice in court. Yes, but I retired at the end of 2019. Um, I was 70 years old. And I thought that was a good time to retire. I'd just been treasurer of, of my inn. And um, I also felt that the sort of cases I were doing really were pretty physically exhausting. And um, probably a good time to go. The last case I did lasted about four years from the moment I was instructed to when it concluded. Um, it was a major corruption case involving alleged corruption in India, Tunisia and Poland. And um, I think it's fair to say at the end of the case, I was pretty tired. And I thought that was a good time to give up. I think very well deserved. <laughs> and you've written a book called yes. Under the Wig. Um, and I just sort of wanted to ask, what's the book about in short? And how did it come about? Well, I was approached by the publisher um, out of the blue who said they were looking for somebody to write a particular sort of book. And for reasons that I didn't understand, they d decided they'd like to ask me first to write it. Um, there had been a very successful book um, written by a neurosurgeon called Henry Marsh, which described um, neurosurgery for the layman. And um, I had read that book um, perchance before I saw the publishers, and they said they wanted somebody to write a similar sort of book for um, the law as a barrister. And um, I thought about it and uh, thought it was a worthwhile book to write. And it's written um, so that every other chapter is a chapter about being a barrister, not about any case or anything. And the alternate uh, chapters are about a case I've done which I suspect was probably to try to make it more um, sellable to the, to the market. But I think the combination worked well, and um, they seemed pleased with it anyway. So that that's how it happened. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you've reached quite a cruel stage in your career if publishers <laughs> are coming to you. Um, and it's a fantastic book. I've, I've read it and loved it, and... We're actually giving away a copy to our listeners, which is very exciting, which Bill has very kindly signed for us today. Uh, so you can get a chance to read it yourself. And it kind of links to the next question I want to ask, because the first, I think it's your introduction, is titled, How Can You Defend a Man Like That? 
and I know you must get asked this question all the time in interviews and talks, but it's something that comes up quite a lot. You know, you've defended in over a hundred murder and manslaughter cases. How can you defend someone if, not that they've told you, but you think they're probably guilty? Well, the first thing you've got to remember is that barristers operate what's called the cab rank rule, which means that if you become a barrister, you have to accept every brief that you're offered in the discipline in which you practice, as long as it's marked at a fee that you would normally work for. So barristers aren't allowed to pick and choose and just do the cases that interest them or the ones they think they can win. So you have to take um, each case that's presented to you. Also, um, it's impossible really to make a um, judgment about whether somebody is guilty um, or not just by looking at the papers. I've done cases where a, 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 <coughs> um, a reading of the material would probably cause most people to say, well, looks pretty obvious as though he's guilty. And then you get to court and the whole thing falls apart. It turns out the person's not been um, uh, not guilty a at all. Indeed, I've done cases where ultimately other people have pleaded guilty to the very crime that the defendant was charged with. So um, I think it's important for the barrister not to go down that road at all. It, it's a, a piece of work we're doing. We, we're not the judge. We're not the jury. We're just putting forward somebody's account for other people to judge. And I think if you look at it like that, it's a bit like um, a surgeon won't um, decline to operate on somebody because they spent their life smoking and, and try to... Uh, um, cure them of uh, cancer or anything like that or, or somebody who has perhaps even tried to kill themselves might be saved by a surgical intervention um, you're just doing the job that you've been trained to do thank you that's a really interesting um, and very valid perspective because Kate is absolutely right it's a question we get asked a lot particularly <laughs> our listeners are a lot of them aspiring lawyers so in sixth form or at university um, and I think thinking about it in that very like kind of important way that it's a job um, and it's essentially the main job that you've worked towards doing. Um, there was an example in your book. There's two things from the book, actually, that we wanted to pull out here. One part um, that I wanted to ask you about, you talk about... I'm just going to read from the book, actually... So it came to be that a Jewish barrister helped to defend a man accused of murdering Jews. Yet another example of lawyers representing clients regardless of the accusation they face because they believe in the principle that everyone deserves a fair trial. Well, that says it um, rather neatly. Yeah, I thought that was a very powerful um, Summation. example and yeah. summary. And the other thing in the book that because I'm honing in on this quite a lot, because it is, honestly, I cannot tell you the amount of times this question is asked, but you talk about how I think people ask that question from the perspective of someone who's guilty not being found guilty, but say they did do it, even though they technically didn't, and they're out about in the street, you know, as a dangerous person. But in your book, you talk about how, there's a quote here, sometimes no matter how thin a prosecution case is, no matter how many holes you can blow in it, 
no matter how succinct and plausible your final address, the jury seem intent on returning a guilty, guilty verdict. True. And I found that really, really interesting because that's kind of from the opposite perspective of actually someone who hasn't done it and being found guilty. I mean, no uh, system of justice is perfect anywhere in the world because they're all operated um, ultimately by humans and we're fallible. Um, we have a system whereby most people consider it's much better that a number of guilty people go free rather than having innocent people convicted of crimes they haven't done. Sometimes said it's better that um, ten guilty men go free than one innocent man is convicted. And it all goes back to the burden of proof. The function of the criminal court is not actually to decide whether somebody is guilty. The function of the criminal court is to decide whether the prosecution have got enough evidence to make reasonable, ordinary people satisfied and sure that somebody is guilty, which is quite different. You might think at the end of the case, well, he probably did it, but we can't be sure about it. Therefore, we have to return a verdict of not guilty. Better that than convict somebody who's innocent. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, and focusing on a slightly different area now, but as you were talking about your book and made the um, connection to Henry Marsh, who mm. wrote about neurosurgeon being a neurosurgeon, um, it's absolutely true, I think, that the career of a barrister is something that, I mean, a lot of people are interested in, hence hopefully the podcast listeners, but it's something that until you have experience or have the chance to maybe shadow a barrister, it's an, a career that people don't know, kind of like the, I suppose, more like nitty gritty details, day to day job. And I think a book like this gives people the opportunity. Um, and something else that you've picked up on in the book is, could you tell us a little bit about some of the cases you've acted in where police investigations went wrong? Um, yes, I mean, I resume one of the first um, notorious cases that I did um, as a QC, as I then was, um, would have been the murder of Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common. Um, that was a case where there was um, widespread national publicity that went on for literally months and the um, murder was a particularly uh, horrific one she was um, a very um, photogenic model with her young son walking in Wimbledon Common who was um, brutally stabbed to death in the presence of her child and um, the police had absolutely no clue as to who had done it. There was no, no one had any motive that anybody could discern. It palpably wasn't anybody that she knew. It was a stranger. Uh, they'd left no clue at the scene that could be identified then on the science that was then available. And the police were put under very considerable pressure to try to get um, a result. And the, the problem with that is that when you place the police under pressure, they sometimes make mistakes or, or sometimes um, do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And in that particular case, um, they decided to seek the um, help of a um, forensic um, psychologist, 
um, and he uh, gave them a um, idea of who he thought might have done it and um, the man who was arrested, Colin Stagg, lived nearby and fitted some of the um, criteria that had been laid down as a possible suspect and he was targeted. There was a very um, unsavoury undercover operation launched against him by a woman police officer who promised um, all sorts of sexual favours if he was to confess to the crime, which he didn't do. And um, he spent more than a year in prison before the case was finally dismissed. But uh, we know for sure he was innocent because a few years later another man pleaded guilty to that killing, he having also murdered another girl, woman, um, in the presence of her child called uh, Jacqueline Blissett. Uh, his name was uh, Napper, and um, Colin Stagg was given um, very substantial damages by the police for his wrongful arrest. But the reason for it was the pressure the police were under warped their judgment. You saw the same thing with the murder of Jill Dando, the um, woman who put the... Um, presented Crime Watch on television. She also did the holiday program. She was a, um, had the same sort of profile that Fiona Bruce has today on television. She's the archetypal girl next door. Um, and she was murdered in a um, completely um, senseless way on her doorstep in Fulham, um, shot um, in the back of the head by somebody who was clearly a stranger. And again, huge um, pressure from the media and from the public to find the, the murderer caused the police to uh, target a man called Barry George, who was a loner who lived not far away. And um, a case was sort of cobbled together against him, but um, ultimately it, it fell apart because the forensic evidence collapsed when looked at um, after the first trial had resulted in a conviction, conviction was quashed and he was ultimately acquitted by a jury. But um, again, the, the reason that he, he was targeted was because of the, the pressure the police were under. There's no, no real evidence against him at all. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you see that repeating itself um, time and again, really. I also think it's interesting because these are the types of cases when it's a stranger... Um, not a family connection or someone they know conducting the murder. Those are the cases that captivate everyone. And those are the cases that everyone is most worried about. But in terms of the number of how the proportion of these cases that are a stranger committing that compared to a connection, what does that look like? Well, the person most likely to murder you is your parent or your partner. Um, and nearly all murders are what in the trade are called domestics. Um, it's rare to have a stranger murder, with the exception of um, gang killings of young lads going around with knives, fighting in the streets. But put, put that uh, to one side, to have a complete stranger um, kill somebody is rare. And the problem is, 
unless they leave some telltale clue or, or a scene nearby, the police have very little to go on because normally murder is solved by who has the motive, who, 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 who knows the person, who doesn't like the person. If none of that exists, then the, the police have a, a very difficult task. Yeah, and I think that really sums up what you were saying earlier, that all justice systems, um, there are people involved in them and people are fallible. And in that way, when the police under such media pressure and public pressure, um, I suppose it makes sense to kind of the layperson how it could potentially go wrong. But thank you, That was those are some really interesting cases. And then... Moving away from the lovely topic of murder, we're going to go to an even more fun topic. Um, but people ask this a lot as well. So there's often news headlines about a barrister making a witness crying court in rape cases. And I say that as the defence counsel making them cry. And we wanted to touch on the strategy of victim blaming where, you know, the victim's actions, clothes or past sexual behaviour provoke the assault. Can you talk about whether this happens a lot? Is it allowed to happen? What's your view in, in general? Well, th these stories, if, if they were ever true, are, are very largely historic. Um, you're not allowed to bring up the previous sexual um, conduct of a victim in, in a case of rape or um, sexual assault and it would only be in the most rare cases that a judge would allow such questions and it would have to be highly relevant to a particular issue in that case. Also um, in my experience bullying the victim is very counterproductive. Nothing is more likely to get the jury on the side of the victim than seeing them being bullied by a, a barrister, be he a man or woman, and be the victim, either a man or a woman. Um, I think um, advocacy has come a long way, and people now are trained, uh, both in prosecuting and in defending in cases like this. And um, the better course, which I think is now invariably the case, is to, um, you could say, be gentle but firm with witnesses. Um, but I, I think overt bullying would be stopped by a judge instantly anyway and would be very counterproductive. Yeah, I think in those situations it's never going to be a fun task to testify as a witness, but it's nice to hear um, clarify what the actual situation is. So, Well, there are various reforms that are coming yeah. in. I mean, already... Um, the victim's uh, evidence um, in chief, we call it, the prosecution is normally taken very near the time of the alleged crime and is then played by way of a video recording to the jury. And we're getting to stage now when the questions in cross-examination will also be recorded yeah. beforehand. So the victim won't need to have to come to court at all yeah. in many of mm. these cases. Um, to jump on the adv advocacy point and moving away from these sort of particular cases, um, I found it interesting you are talking about obviously training for sort of certain areas of advocacy, but throughout your career, is there, do you feel that there is a particular, um, I don't know if style is the correct wording here, of advocacy that works particularly well, or do you tend to see kind of a whole range of barristers employing different styles in the courts? 
Um, I think advocacy has certainly changed in the 50 years that I was a barrister. Um, I think there was a tendency for barristers to be rather patrician um, 50 years ago, perhaps, or at least some of them. Mm. Um, there is, of course, the famous um, opening um, at the Old Bailey of the trial of Lady Chatterley's lover when the prosecuting barrister said to the jury, uh, is this the sort of book that you would like any of your servants to read? Um, the barrister defending who I knew turned to his junior and said, we've won. And he was right. But I don't think you'd get anybody saying that today. Um, I think as for style, um, I think each barrister has to develop his own style. I mean, um, one obviously wants to be seen as um, approachable. You want to be able to put forward a, an argument in a coherent way. And if a jury can't understand what your case is and can't believe in it, you're never going to win. So you've got to make it both comprehensible and believable. Um, and, and I think a, a conversational style is, is very good when speaking to a jury. Of course, questioning a witness is different. That depends very much on who the witness is. Um, you wouldn't, um, for example, cross-examine a 10-year-old child in the same way you might cross-examine um, the detective inspector of the flying squad. Thank you. I think uh, that's definitely answered that it's such like a multifaceted skill set that you, um, throughout your career, I'm sure, begin to like adapt to these different situations. And Yes, but I mean, you do it in life anyway, though, wouldn't yeah. you? You wouldn't talk to a child the same way you would talk to the headmaster of a school if you went there. And it, it, it's, it's the same in court. You, you, you adjust how you um, speak to people depending on who they are. Thank you. That's yeah, absolutely true and makes a lot of sense. Um, and sort of following on from this, since we've been talking about your career more in general, um, what would you say has been the most challenging moment you faced in your career? The most challenging moment? Well, I presume appearing in the Privy Council in the capital case um, was very challenging because um, if you don't succeed, there's a possibility that somebody's will die, um, which is quite a sobering thought. Mm. So I think they're probably the most challenging cases. Yeah, talk about a high-pressure job. <laughs> yes. Well, you don't uh, um, go out partying the night before a case like that. <laughs> um, yeah, that is very, very makes sense, very fair. <laughs> and we also just wanted to ask about the legal profession, legal industry more broadly. What are the biggest challenges, in your opinion, facing the UK legal system today? And, you know, we've seen the barrister strikes in the news recently and so many examples of cases that have gone wrong or things like that. Is it fair to say that the legal profession is in crisis? I think that's... Um... 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I don't think it's in crisis, no. Um, the legal profession um, is un- is being challenged and particularly um, by uh, successive governments in failing to fund the system properly and that has resulted um, in difficulties both in cases themselves and, and also in the infrastructure. Um, I find um, sitting as I do now in the Chelmsford in the country, that half the time the equipment won't work in court. So time is wasted because the video recorder won't work and it's always the cheapest um, equipment that is bought uh, and not surprisingly it breaks down. Um, the buildings themselves aren't properly maintained. I mean, they do literally leak famous case of the judge in the Midlands when asked by a more senior judge if there was anything that they could provide his court said he'd like another bucket and when asked why he said well we've got two leaks and only one bucket to catch the water in um, I mean, it's obviously a, a flippant remark but it, it's depressing because my practice has taken me um, to a lot of courts in foreign countries and you can go to courts in the third world and they are meticulously clean. You could almost literally eat your breakfast off the, off the floor. They're spotless. There's a pride in them. And everything is um, maintained to a, a, a good standard. And, and you come here and the same cannot be said. And um, there doesn't appear to be any pride in, in the infrastructure at all, which I think is um, deeply depressing. Yeah, thank you. And um, I think that is something that we actually have been kind of hearing a lot over in our different podcasts uh, from various barristers. Um, sort of maybe looking ahead to try and put a more optimistic future spin on it. Um, what are some of the developments or changes you either foresee or would like to see um, in the legal landscape over the next decade that you think could make a big impact? A part of me thinks it'd be rather good if there wasn't too much more change. There's probably been little too much change already, but that may be the um, reflections of an old man. Um, I, I do think that there is a 
um, watershed since COVID and the pandemic. Um, when I started, uh, every barrister went to Chambers, their office, every day, because you had to, because papers would be delivered, um, often by hand, by um, solicitors in London for a case perhaps the next day or need some urgent advice. And uh, you had to go in to do your mail every day. Um, and it was a rare day when you didn't go in, into chambers. Now, because uh, everything's done by email and with uh, electronic um, attachments to um, emails, have all the statements attached, and there's no need to go into chambers. So what is lost has been that collegiate atmosphere that you would have in chambers, which was very precious. Um, and it would mean that young barristers would have the advantage of being able to spend time with more senior barristers on a daily basis, talk about cases, learn about cases, ask for advice. And um, that, I think, has been lost forever. And such attempts as there are to replicate it are a poor substitute for what used to be the case. So that is, that is a change, and I think that's going to remain. And I think, as a result, uh, chambers will get smaller in size. Um, Barristers won't be going into them very much. They won't meet in, in the same way that they used to. Um, and I think that is um, unfortunate, but uh, there's no way you can turn the clock back. That, that, that is the future. I think, you know, I mean, Ellie and I are obviously working our way towards qualifying. Ellie as a barrister, me eventually as a solicitor. And... This is something we've thought about, especially with COVID and working from home. I mean, mm. in the solicitor context, how many years ago you would have been in the office with your supervisor working in two desks in the same room, even overhearing their phone calls, seeing how they speak to people, what, what their daily structure is like. And I know that I will be in the office when I start work, but I think that's three out of five days a week, mm. if that. And even for me, you know, I, I do wonder if that will affect how much I learn. I hope it doesn't. But I think it's a very good point. And it is something you can't replicate online, just that being in the same place, overhearing the small things. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, and it, it is lost. It's one of the results of COVID. It was coming anyway with yeah. uh, electronic briefs uh, and uh, no more paper briefs, as it were. Um, but it was certainly accelerated um, as a result of COVID. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting also the contrast because um, I'm still at university and a large, well, I'm sure it's been in that case for a very long time, but it's always talking about networking and keeping connections. Whereas I think, I think networking over things like Zoom, it's harder to maintain connections. So even like outside the workforce but just kind of getting like a feel for a certain career or trying to keep in touch with people while a lot easier it's kind of harder to maintain a relationship if you're just constantly meeting over zoom and I think that's something particularly people who've done work experience um which happened during the pandemic just over yeah, zoom it's really hard and a virtual your mini pupillage just moved online wasn't it yeah and while i was so grateful for the experience it's really hard to get a feel for court if you're just like 
I know. watching it on your computer screen. So no, it's a really interesting perspective because people tend to talk about technology really positively. Um, which it is. Which is, but, but there's obviously always there's a, a downside yeah, yeah. Downside most downside. of these things. Yes, definitely. If you don't mind me picking up on something you said uh, just like a few answers ago, uh, you were talking about your work internationally um, in different courts. And I wanted to ask a little bit about that because... As Katie pointed out, I'm an aspiring barrister. Um, something that people say quite a lot at kind of career career events is that it's a job that can be quite hard to go overseas with. Um, did you have you found that? And when you go overseas, overseas, what sort of work are you engaging with? Um, well, I was um, primarily doing um, criminal work, so I would I worked at the um, international court for the former Yugoslavia in the Hague. Um, for a few years. I did about five appeals there. Um, and I was asked to go over there to do the first ever appeal in a case called Tadich, which was the first trial they had. Um, I'm not quite sure why I was approached, um, but um, I was pleased I was. I enjoyed the challenge and I in enjoyed um, going over there. Of course, having done the first, when it came to the second, I was the only person who'd ever done an appeal before. So I had um, a, a sort of sell-by um, date um, on me then. Um, so th that was um, really very much by chance. Um, I got involved in, in um, war crimes. And since then, I've been asked by various governments to advise on potential war crimes trials there. Um, I, th I think these things just crop up in your um, in your work. I mean, I did quite a lot of work in Dubai, um, mainly for the royal family who had various um, interests over here that occasionally um, required um, advice. And they had quite a lot of members of the family would come over here, particularly in the summer, and there might be um, various difficulties they might get into. So I would spend... Um, quite a reasonable amount of time going to and from Dubai to discuss that those problems. Um, I did quite a lot of international fraud. And that was probably most of what I did in the latter part of my career. Um, a lot of it was um, corruption, and um, that sometimes involved travelling um, through Europe, or I don't think I went, and, and the United States. Um, seeing witnesses and taking taking evidence sometimes in court. I also did the only two war crimes trials in this country following the War Crimes Act of 1991, uh, Serevanovich and Sawaniuk. That took me to Poland and Belarus um, four or five times, um, mainly evidence gathering with solicitors. Um, I found it all interesting and also, um, in cases, sometimes you take evidence abroad. There's an um, international treaty that uh, we've signed up to whereby um, we can request a court in Spain, for example, to summon somebody to come and be questioned in a Spanish court by um, me. And um, I've certainly done that in Spain and in um, the United States and um, other countries as well. And uh, my very last 
court appearance ever will probably be in Greece, where I'm going in a few months' time to um, address the uh, Supreme Court. In fact, I'm an expert witness there. Wow, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very extensive. <clears throat> Yeah. Thank you. That's, That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> so cool. Um, so I think we've kind of got one last question for you, but there's two sides of it. It's not a hard one. Don't don't <laughs> worry. But what's the best piece of advice you've ever received during your legal career? And then also what advice do you want to share with our listeners who are aspiring barristers or lawyers? Um, I think the best advice I would give would be that if you really want to become a barrister don't be put off but do it because it would be awful to go through life thinking I really wanted to do that job but I hadn't quite got the courage to give it a go there are huge rewards um, to be made uh, by people in the profession both um, financially and also um, in, in, in the um, it's also very rewarding in, in, in the sense that you enjoy the work. I mean, I have literally enjoyed going to work every day, I think. And I think if you can say that, then it, it, it's a great uh, testament. Um, so I, I wouldn't um, let anyone put you off. If that's what you really want to do, give it a go. And there are still people earning perfectly good salaries as barristers and some people earning a great deal. Um, the best advice I was ever given? Gosh, um, there'd been so much um, advice. The best advice I was ever given was by my um, tutor at university um, who advised me to join Gray's Inn. That was the inn I've been in throughout my career and uh, I ended up ultimately being the treasurer of that's really nice Lovely, yeah. <laughs> such a full circle moment yeah. to you then <laughs> being the treasurer that's amazing well thank you so much is that it? it's been very, yeah. <laughs> very okay. enlightening yeah thank you so much oh, you're, you're welcome Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.